Good morning. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12 this morning. If you want to make your way there on your device or in your Bible, it's good to see you. Glad we could finish up this series entitled Jesus is Better. And Daniel's taken us through uh, two weeks and done such a good job. We're going to be looking at Jesus today as the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Um, Before we were married, my wife's name is Beck. we met our sophomore year of college and we uh, were going to both join. We went to two different universities and we were going to join together for a summer outreach to China. And so we were hopping on the team to get over there for six weeks and share the gospel with university students. Well, our team leaders before we left thought it would be a great idea because we went to different schools for us to get together and at least get to know each other. So we had one gathering in May of 1998 and, um, and got together. And they played this game in order for us to kind of get to know one another. They said, hey, if, if there was a movie made about your life after you die, which actor would you want them to choose to play your part? And so we all went around the room. I don't know if you're thinking about yours right now, but we all went around the room and this was the guy I chose. <laughs> Mr. Bean, Rowan Atkinson. If you haven't seen him, he's great. But needless to say, Beck, I didn't quite win her heart at that moment. Uh, she would tell me months later after we were engaged that, that immediately, right when I said it, she said, nope, not going to marry that guy. <laughs> and then when she got on the airplane a few weeks later, I saw her walking by and I looked at her and I said, Aaron, right? And she said, nope. So, uh, <laughs> Thankfully, it's been 24 years since that moment. We've been married 22 of those. And uh, if you guys know my family, you know Miracle of Miracles. I married that girl. So uh, really thankful for that. But I wonder this morning, even as we've been talking about Jesus being better, I wonder where your heart is in relationship to Jesus. What impression lies deep within your heart. Maybe you're new to church. Maybe you're new to Brook Hills and you're getting acquainted with him. Maybe you're reading the Bible for the first time and something in your heart says, what's the big deal? He's kind of blah. Nothing in you is, is wooing you to, to come to him. Or maybe you've been a Christian for a long time and the difficulties have come and the long race is ahead of you and you're starting to doubt. Is he really better? Is he my guy? Well, Hebrews is out to address that very issue in our hearts, wherever we are on that spectrum. And this is the question it asks us to address in our hearts, and it's this. Is Jesus anything less than compelling to you this morning? Is Jesus anything less than compelling to you? And if so... Hebrews wants a word with you this morning. This book is in your Bible to uniquely overcome any initial impression about Jesus or any lingering impression about Jesus that would make you reluctant to follow him no matter what the cost. This book is out to convince your heart, your doubting heart, just like mine, every day that Jesus is indeed better. Because I feel it, don't you? Our hearts are so fickle. You can leave a gathering like this and within hours or maybe by tomorrow morning, Jesus feels distant. You're kind of disillusioned with him. Maybe Mr. Bean's not in your head, but, but some other obstacle is there for you completely seeing his sufficiency. 
So we need this book, and we need this book over and over and over and over again to reinforce our perception about how truly great Jesus is. And today we get to behold his wonder as the pioneer and perfecter of faith. So look in Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3, and follow along with me there. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and give up. This text really gets to the heart of the matter of addressing our fickleness, our flimsy resolve, and the main imperative is right there in the middle. Let us run, and it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of the faith. You may have founder and perfecter in the ESV. There are different translations out there of these two words. And there's, there's no hour before that word faith, though, in the original. And I want to point that out because uh, the author doesn't merely have your personal belief in Jesus in view here. He's been talking about faith his whole book. And in chapter 11, he really ramped that discussion up. And so he's going to bring Jesus forward as one of these witnesses to show us the premier illustration of what faith really looks like when he endured the cross. And he is going to show us this culmination of faith of all the ages that Jesus illustrates in that moment at the cross. And that has implications for our faith, but it's broader than our faith. And Jesus being the pioneer and perfecter, what does that mean? It means he is the one who ventured out and the only one who could venture out of heavenly glory, becoming a man, entering our desperate plight, and pave a path all the way to future glory by being the first to cross the finish line. He's the pioneer and the perfecter. One writer said he came all the way down to blaze a trail all the way back. He pioneered a path for us, breaking the impenetrable threshold that we could never break if in and of ourselves before us and God as sinners before him. And he paved the path for us to be restored to a right relationship with God. And he is the perfecter in that the way he endured and the fruit of his endurance means he is able and suited and outfitted to help you finish your race and cross the finish line yourself. What this means is when he's the pioneer and the perfecter, that no part of the Christian life happens outside of him. You don't begin the Christian life, you don't move forward in the Christian life, you don't finish the Christian life without his sustaining and saving activity in your life. He is, from beginning to end, faith's object, faith's originator, faith's source, faith's sustainer, and faith's finisher. He is the pioneer and perfecter. He was up to the task to finish his race, so he is up to the task to help you and me, if we follow in his stead, finish our race. Simply put, 
Jesus is the only hope to get on the right path that leads all the way to heaven. He's the only hope to sustain us on that path that leads to heaven. And he's the only one that can open that door to heaven for us. He is the pioneer and perfecter. Our one hope and stay. What this means is, there on your outline, apart from Jesus, life is treadmills and dead ends. We're all running from something or for something. Some of you moms were running this morning to get your kids ready. Someone is saying in your internal mind that whole refrain in Forrest Gump, run, Forrest, run, right? Forrest, what did he do? He ran for over three years when Jenny walked out on him. And this race, really, that we're caught up in, in and of our own strength, is, is either proving our merit, proving our stamina, and reinforcing this idea that we can live apart from God. Or if we don't measure up, we find some way to punish ourselves or escape the pain, so we're running from that feeling. Maybe you're running after success or financial freedom or religious status or even friends in the approval of man. The thing is, that treadmill all revolves around you and your resources. And eventually, you're going to say with Forrest Gump, I'm tired. You're going to run out of gas. We won't reach the finish line in that treadmill. Why? Because the finish line is coming toward us. And we won't have the stamina to make it. Because it's all built around you and your resources. But Jesus, my friends, opens up a better race for us to run. You see, it's a race of faith that the author of Hebrews is talking about. And when he is your pioneer and your perfecter, it means the whole race becomes a display of his resourcefulness, not yours. Of his abundant supplies to help you finish the race, not your limited supplies to give you stamina. The running is fueled by his strength and his sufficiency. You see, rest eludes us in the treadmill mindset that centers on us. Because the more we run, the more we attain, and that means the more we have to keep running. Because we've got to keep up with that image that we've projected to our friends. Or we've got to keep up with that financial freedom that we finally attained. So we start running even harder, sweating even more. And that rat race will eventually run out on us. But the track Jesus opens means we run in the sufficiency of his work. We run resting in his work to eternal rest that he purchased for us. The stamina is fueled by security in his work, not insecurity in our own sufficiency or insufficiency. The race Outside of faith in Jesus is all about the strength you can muster. But the race inside of Jesus and the the race that he governs is filled with resources to help you finish because he finished ahead of you. He's able to carry many sons and daughters all the way across the finish line, all the way into future glory. So friends, I just ask you this morning, are you running the right race? Are you running the only race that leads to heavenly glory, the one that Jesus governs and guides and gives you the gas for? Or are you, have you exchanged that for some burdensome treadmill that won't take you anywhere and your resources will eventually expire? expire. Throw in the t- towel on the treadmill, friends. 
Jesus opens a better race, and he's a better pioneer and a better perfecter. And the race is a marathon. And so this passage gets to the heart of the the stamina we need to endure in the faith. And really, the stamina that comes from this passage, and this passage opens up before us, is one motivation and two means. And the first one there on your outline is the motivation. Listen to the faithful dead. Listen to the faithful dead. Notice there in verse 1, Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, that's the motivation. We have this large cloud, which is an image, a big image of a crowd that he's just unpacked all the way through chapter 11. And he recounted there Old Testament after Old Testament example of those that live by faith and press forward in the race that lied before them and, and are waiting to finish everything that Jesus is providing for them in the future with us all. The reason why that cloud is the crowd of witnesses in chapter 11 is that chapter 11 is actually bookended by this idea of witness in the original. Now in your Bible, you might have the language of approval or approved, but that's the same root word as this idea of witness. And the idea is this, everyone in chapter 11 gives approval to the way of faith, that it's the right way, or gains approval because of their faith before God. They each, in a sense, take the stand in the courtroom where the verdict is out on God's faithfulness in our heart, and they commend to us, keep running, keep running. They commend to us the way of faith. They plead their case to run forward into God's promised future, and they refuse to retreat, and their testimonies tell the story. He indeed is faithful. He won't. They keep saying it. He won't. Just like that song keeps saying it. He won't fail us. Remember that classic scene in Remember the Titans? If you haven't seen that movie or it's maybe a little dusty on your shelf, that movie basically retold the story of a football team in Virginia that was pioneering a path forward for society that basically our society had agreed that there was equality between blacks and whites, but tangibly and functionally we had not entered into that scene. And so this football uh, team was forced by the government to, to bring together both black people and white people on the same team. And it was a debacle. It was falling apart at the scenes because the racism was so entrenched. Not only were the players fighting, but the coaches were fighting. And they finally get to camp and it starts to unravel even more and so the coach I don't know if you remember he was played by Denzel Washington he got all the team up at 3 a.m. one morning it's all dark outside and they start running through the dark woods and they end up right when the sun is rising right at the cusp of this field where the sun is coming over and it's a foggy graveyard and the coach is the only one that that knows where they have come and that is the the battle of Gettysburg And all their tombs, the tombs of 50,000 men were scattered behind him. And they shed their blood so that they might stop fighting on that football team. And these were the words of Denzel Washington. Listen to their souls, men. Take a lesson from the dead. If we don't come together on this hallowed ground, we too will be destroyed. You see, that battlefield and their testimonies on their tombs beckoned that team to overcome their hatred and press into a future that our society hadn't witnessed at that point. 
And this chapter and another chapter in Hebrews is, is the same type of sense. He's bringing us, and we're on the cusp of a graveyard of sorts. This eerily familiar ground where we know the stories. But there's, there's these tombstones are littered in the background. And he took us through part of the graveyard in chapter 3. Where the wilderness generation, he unpacked their story of how they came out of Egypt. But instead of pushing forward in faith and entering the promised land, they wanted to retreat back to Egypt. And he says, be aware of the danger of unbelief. And their silent tombs are screaming at us this morning. Unbelief is not the way forward in the Christian life. Unbelief just keeps you on the treadmill from Egypt back to Egypt, from Egypt back to Egypt, and they perished in the wilderness. And then we overhear these witnesses, these stories from the Old Testament, right there in the graveyard, speaking from their tombs, saying, Enoch says it, Abraham says it, Noah says it, Moses says it. They all testify that, yes, keep running forward. God is faithful. They are commending to us a new future and pressing us into that future by encouraging us to run the race before us. And by the, the, the barrage, really, of their testimonies in chapter 11, every wavering heart in the room is kind of settled. Retreating is not the way forward. Running, running is the way forward. And then... A living one interrupts the scene at the graveyard. Jesus isn't speaking from a tombstone in Hebrews 12. He's the risen, reigning king. And his example beckons us forward. Everyone else's testimony in chapter 11 is eclipsed by this final witness of the one, the only one who endured the cross. He has faced pinnacle example. He has faced purest expression He's the only one that endured the cross. And the contrast between these two communities in Hebrews gets even richer when you start unpacking those stories in the Pentateuch, the first five books of your Bible. You see, Israel in the wilderness, when they started wavering, they actually say to Moses, let's appoint a different leader and he'll take us back to Egypt in Numbers 14.4. And in the original, in the translation that, that of the original, in the Greek version, that same word for leader is the word for pioneer that we have right here in Hebrews. You see, unbelief wants a leader to take us backward, to keep us on the treadmill. But faith leans on Jesus as the only pioneer into God's future for us. If you are thinking this morning about throwing in the towel, are you listening to the faithful dead? They are motivating you to keep running, Christian. It's worth it. It's worth it. He'll be faithful. Not once has he betrayed anyone who banked on him. That's what their story tells us. And at this sacred graveyard, at this hallowed ground, this morning, the evidence is in from all the witnesses. Keep running. Keep running, dear Christian. Keep running. So that's the first, that's the motivation. Let's look at the means. The first means in this passage to keep running the race of faith is by laying aside whatever slows and the sin which always threatens. Laying aside whatever slows and the sin which always threatens. Look in verse one after he mentions the witnesses. Let us lay aside 
every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. The author wants us to strip off anything in our life that stifles faith and Jesus' resourcefulness. And these two, two threats really threaten to restrict Jesus' resourcefulness from coming our way and him keeping us in the game and in the race. Now, hindrances can be good things or bad things. It's whatever hindrance, whatever encumbrance, whatever weighs you down in this race, it's whatever slows you. Anything that makes you more lethargic about following one leader, Jesus, into the God, God's promised future. Anything that makes Jesus less and less compelling to you might be on your radar for something to cast aside. Anything that desensitizes you to his sufficiency and greatness. Anything that makes you more casual about your fight for personal holiness and our fight for corporate holiness. Anything, cast it aside. It's simply a reality that every choice of entertainment, food, sleep, and a friend is either conditioning us for the race of faith or deconditioning us for that race where we need stamina. I think we've confused the word legalism with just plain wisdom on these issues. What's bad that needs to go? That's not legalism, that's wisdom. What's good that needs to be limited so that you can rely more on Jesus? Lay aside any hindrance. Sure, you're free. There's no law that says you can't have your phone by your bed. But if five nights out of 10, that phone is a platform for your unbelief to make you stumble, lock it in the car, <laughs> right? Put it away. Put it way away. Lay it aside. Be ruthless with whatever stifles faith. Now to the second thing that must be laid aside, he says the sin which so easily ensnares us. And that, that adjective he adds to it, it's talking about this sin that clings so closely and it's, it's intended to impart a sense of vulnerability to us in this room this morning. So yesterday at the end of a workout, I was walking home through the woods and I walked through this spider web and it felt like it was all over me. You know that feeling. And then every little ounce of anything on my back, because I never saw the spider, was, was all of a sudden my alert, right? <laughs> Just trying to get it off. And then when I got home, I felt something trickle down my back inside my shirt. And I freaked out and almost ripped my shirt off. But it turns out it was sweat. So, <laughs> but that's what this, this, this adjective should be doing to us. It easily ensnares us. Sin is all around you. It's right there. It's lurking. You can't get rid of it this side of heaven. And all your sensitivities should be alerted to any danger it is. Any trickle down your back, throw it off. Cast it aside. Do not play games with it. It's dangerous. Lay it aside. Did you feel sin this morning as a close by imminent threat, a sticky threat. And there's a the before this word sin in the CSB and it, it could be a general statement about the sin and its multifaceted forms in our life. But a lot of the older commentaries located this sin as the sin of unbelief. And on the hills of chapter 11, I think that has some merit. Unbelief is what's lurking and ensnaring us. 
One thing we all could get accustomed to, and I know you would, you would say amen to this, is we're aware of the weather because we live in Alabama, right? The color coding system, we're tracking at different times of the year. I didn't know who James Spann was before we moved here, but everyone in this room knows who he is, unless you're new to Birmingham. ABC forecaster, you'll get to know him. But you guys remember two marches ago when, when that tornado came through our community, and he was tracking it, the polygon, and tracking down Highway 119, Oak Mountain Schools, Chick-fil-A, Lee Branch, Eagle Point. He was saying all the places we frequent. And then there was this sobering moment. Maybe many of you were watching it when he said, I'm going to hand the microphone to my colleague because I need to call home. My wife needs to be in the basement. So he calls home right there. All of a sudden, the threat he was tracking for all of us had become the target. He had become the target of, right? And I think, in, especially in our circles in Christianity today, we are very attuned to everyone else's polygon. We can be watching Twitter. We can be listening to podcasts that raise up the red flag of this is the danger, this is the danger. But we've forgotten that the danger's here. Any drift toward unbelief, it's targeting you. So let's, let's put down the siren call for everyone else and hear the siren call of the alarm for us. This sin easily ensnares us. And the safest way forward in the Christian life is to marry a James Spann. No, he's taken. The safest way forward in the Christian life is to become a member of a local church and be tethered to meaningful community. This is what Hebrews 3 says. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Notice, watch out, church at Brook Hills. All of us have a corporate responsibility so that there won't be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage each other daily while it is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. So friends, who has your number here? Whose number do you have to call and make sure they're in the basement of, of God's saving refuge in Christ? Who, who knows your polygon when it's tracking, when unbelief is headed your way and you haven't slept or work hours have been a lot? Who's calling you to say, hey man, you're going to be in the Word tonight? That's the, our responsibility. Who has your number and whose number do you have to encourage day after day to not be hardened by sin's deception? Ray Ortland said one time, and I think he gets the vulnerability of this verse. He said, I firmly believe I am never more than five minutes away from ruining my life. People who firmly believe that give themselves to real meaningful community. The second means of enduring in the faith that this passage outlines for us is locking in on Jesus. Locking in on Jesus. You see, fresh legs are found in fresh visions of Christ. The way forward is outlined there in verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And I use that word locking in because that's what we use for athletes that are so laser focused, so undistractable, right, that they're going to finish the game. This is locking in on Jesus, not with physical eyes, but spiritual eyes of faith that, that doesn't have a fuzzy vision of Jesus in our minds, but a focused vision of Jesus 
in your mind. Sin will come to you with 3D color. If Jesus is in black and white, he's not going to be able to compel you at that moment to give up sin for his sufficiency. We got to have Jesus right there, lively, a lively sense of his glory. So a fuzzy Christ will lead to a flimsy confidence and that will fizzle out in the race of faith. But fresh legs come when we are freshly in awe of a saving Christ. And we have a particular challenge to this means of stamina in our day. It's a blessing and a burden that technology is so rampantly uh, available to us. But our attention is so easily diverted. Tony Rinke says that attention is the currency of power in our day. Just ask politicians. It doesn't matter what they say, just that they're saying it and you're listening. YouTubers, same thing. You know they can grab you. If they can grab you, they can get you. Your attention, church, in our day and age needs your attention. If you mainly read your Bibles, for instance, as an example, on your phones, and that happens to be the same place where you do social media and text messages and and work responsibilities and email, then the medium in that moment is not going to help you fixate on Jesus and see him clearly. You need to think of another avenue to help you fixate and limit distractions on Jesus and his worth and see him in 3D type clarity. Because that's what the author does here. Our stamina stems from seeing his stamina there in verses 2 and 3. He draws our attention to his endurance. His stamina was of such a magnitude and worth that it compels us to take the next step of faith. If you're doubting this morning of taking that next step of faith, I encourage you not to look at the step. Look at the Savior. Fix your eyes on him. And what does he say he did? He endured the cross there in the middle of verse 2. And one blaring difference between the saints of old and Jesus is no one in chapter 11 knew all the dangers they would face in the race that was set before them. Two of them, Noah and Moses in chapter 11, hear of coming danger and bypass it by faith. Others definitely suffered in chapter 11, but they didn't know what suffering was coming around the corner. But not so with Jesus. He knew what it would cost him, and he still did it, friends. Jesus predicted his death countless times, and not just his death, but details about it. The fact that he'd be betrayed and scourged and mocked and insulted and lifted up on a cross. He knew it all and outlined it for his disciples. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, God gave him a foretaste of the coming wrath, and his knees buckled under the crushing weight of the realization of what was coming his way. He's not the guy that kind of puts out his head out and sees a bullet coming and, and ducks back in. He, he pokes his head out, sees the danger, and steps right into it. And he takes it on the chin, the whole weight of the wrath of God that was deserved for me and for you. He endured the cross. This isn't passive resignation to those that were in control in that day. This was active obedience, active endurance. He endured the cross. He took it on the chin and he said, not my will, Father, but yours be done. Now such unparalleled endurance, if you're like me, you're like, how? How in the world did Jesus do this? What fueled Jesus' endurance, the author keeps telling us. Number one there on the outline, his hope. 
joy fueled his endurance. For the joy that lay before him. Joy kept Jesus going on the path of obedience. It wasn't the fleeting joy of the worldly comfort, but the future joy of his father's embrace and reward. The future joy of his vanquishing his foes and his vindication before all of his enemies. The the future glory of being perfected in his ability to save sinners like you and me. Faith enabled Jesus to see beyond the cross to embrace the burden of the cross. You can kind of see it this way. His hope of joy beyond the tape was pulling him through the tape of the cross. Joy was around the corner. He tasted it in that moment of pain. Secondly, what kept him enduring, the author goes on, his hatred. And his hatred was shame. He endured the cross, how? By despising the shame. Now this word for despising has some some teeth to it, does it not? Kind of think of Jesus in different terms. But inwardly, Jesus right here is not despising those who were shaming him, but despising everything that he was hearing on the inside. Insults were being hurled at him, and he was hurling them aside, violently despising. He wasn't just disregarding them. He was disgusted at them. He would rather be ashamed before man than be ashamed before God. He'd rather obey than make a few friends. He would not depart from the path that was outlined for him. And I think today we treat shame as if it's neutral. Like we let it talk to us. We kind of listen to it. We let it surround us. But Jesus, he talked to it. Get behind me. Get off me. He knew that their mockery wanted him to to divert, to bypass the, the pain coming his way. He knew that their mockery wanted him to retreat and disobey the Father. And he was saying inwardly, you're the ones who got the universe wrong. Only one opinion matters to me, and it's my Father's. His obedience said, not only not my will be done, but yours. And he looked at all of his oppressors and he said, not yours, your will be done either. I'm looking only at God. And we are a culture so sensitized through social media and other means to what other people think of us. Friends, take a lesson from Jesus. One opinion matters to him. Get off that treadmill of the approval of man because it's going nowhere. And some of you are going to college next week. Some will mock you for going to bed on Saturday, on Saturday night so that you can get up for church on Sunday morning. Let them say what they say. Who cares? Taste a little bit of this despising the shame. Get out of my way, college students. Say that in your heart. Get out of my way and don't look back. That's not your group. (laughs) Blake, run hard, brother. Run hard. The race set before you. His hatred and his hope fueled his endurance. But Hebrews goes on. What is the fruit of his endurance? His hold. He didn't stop short only to let you go now. His hold. He didn't stop short only to let you go now. Look what the author says. 
and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He sits to save you. This is the exclamation point on our whole series that Jesus is better. Jesus now, with forever implications for everyone who follows the race set before them by following him, their leader. Jesus now presides as God's appointed king over all of his foes and as God's sufficient priest over all of your sins. He crossed the finish line and he was now perfectly outfitted to save. What that means is he's not just an example beckoning you forward, but he's got the resources to empower you to endure. The one who endured the cross is now enthroned. If you could peer into heaven for one minute, just just do it with me for a minute. Imagine what you would see. You would see a risen Christ with all of his scars holding the keys in his hands of death and hell. You'd see myriads of angels bowing before him. You'd see him reigning over all of his enemies, governing what happens in the heavenly realm and governing everything that happens in the earthly realm. And you would see his father, oh, would you see his father, beaming with delight over his son and his finished work. You'd see the elders just bowing before him. Seated and scarred, every eye would be on him. The spotlight would be centered on him. And every will would be bending to his every desire. But imagine, dear Christian, what you would hear. Yes, you would hear the cacophony of praises. You'd hear all of them singing worthy is that lamb who was seated on that throne. But if you leaned in close enough, Hebrews tells us he always lives to make intercession for you. You would hear the sweetest sound on his lips. You would hear him praying. And you would hear him praying with your name, dear Christian. You'd hear him praying, Brian Foxworthy, who's hurting this week, one of our members. You'd hear him praying. Robert Murray McShane said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yes, and he is praying in the only room that matters, friends. Friends, while Jesus was on earth, think of it, it wasn't in him to stop short of the race that lied before him. Now that he is in heaven, do you think it's in him to let you stop short of the race that lies before you? No way. No way. Jesus is better, church. He didn't stop short on earth only to let you go from heaven. He is the pioneer and perfecter of faith. So listen to the faithful dead. Lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles and look and fix and focus and lock in on Jesus, the one who endured, who now sits enthroned. And friends, let's keep running together this race of faith.